Welcome to our look at Season 3, Episode 4, Part 1. So it's Clean, Part 1. And we were looking at the chat, we were discussing in the chat beforehand what everyone liked about the opening. If you liked the opening, if you didn't, um, and it looks like people liked the opening. The black and white really, it surprised me. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that, but it makes sense. It kind of set it apart from the regular um, way that the rest of the episode was going to go, was going to go through. It was really clearly vignettes. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about it, but I just wanted to see what you all thought about it. I agree. I enjoyed watching their faces as it happened, that they were kind of surprised by what they could do. Um, it, the little James, I think that was particularly moving. So, um, how he, he heals someone, how he's has to grapple with the fact that he's healing, even though he's not healed. So, um, yeah, I just was interested in your, your thoughts on the opening, so we are going to launch into, again, this is season three, episode four, Clean. And season three, episode four, Clean, part one. We're looking at that today. And I, it's, it's a, it was a regular length episode, but I actually probably have less to talk about, I think, because so much of it really is setting up not just what's going to happen in the rest of the season, which we've seen in these, these episodes, but it's really setting up what's going to happen in the next episode in part two. Now, when we look at the scriptures for this episode, we are really looking at maybe like Mark five through eight. That's what the season seems to be revolving around. We see in Mark six, Jesus is rejected at Nazareth, but then, and sends out the apostles. But now we're going to kind of go back to Mark five. Um, we're kind of looking at Matthew nine, 10, 11, but not in the order that we find them in scripture. So the writers are um, taking artistic license with the order of some of these stories. We're, we're going to talk about that more later in the um, season, especially in episode eight. I'm going to discuss more of my thoughts on how they interpreted the timeline and how they interpreted some of these events. So, but they're, they're obviously taking artistic license. We've seen that happen before. And they're just kind of showing, okay, what what if? Um, and we know that even in the Synoptic Gospels and in John, you know, to kind of reconcile these timelines, scripture scholars have had to deal with some of these questions. And um, we also know that the we don't believe that the evangelists were setting out these stories as they were like newspaper writers, right? So that's not the way um, the ancient East told stories. That's not the way the scripture generally is, is like a, a word by word, blow by blow of events. Um, and so we don't have to believe that the scriptures are telling the story in this way. And so I think we can have some artistic license with how these stories would have unfolded. But just so you know, that's where we are in the scriptures, give or take. We're in like Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8. We're in, we're in, Ma or sorry, Mark 5, 6, 7, 8. We're in Matthew 9, 10, 11. But things aren't necessarily in the order. And we'll talk more about that in, especially in season or episode, sorry, seven and eight. So as we were discussing in the chat beforehand, the opening is very dramatic. We see the apostles on mission. It's not, again, we've talked about this before, but it's not something we usually think about. We don't really picture what this looked like. We read in the scriptures, for example, in Mark 6, 7, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. 
but we don't we don't picture that we don't think about what that happened what that looked like we don't think about the fact that like how long have these men been with him and who are, what are they going out and teaching and um, we see in the Gospels the return and their their triumphant their their excitement over their return that like the evil spirits were were you know subject to them and, and Jesus is like don't rejoice over that but rejoice that your name is written in the in the book of heaven in the book of life and so we read these things but we don't really picture and so I think this opening is really powerful to picture what this would have looked like just two notes about the opening and then we'll go into the um, the episode, Renee, I agree. When the apostles were teaching the, our father, we saw them all teaching this prayer. I thought that was really powerful. So I agree. I really like that about the opening. Um, and I, you know, two things about the opening. One, we see in the Decapolis, the, we see some characters we're going to see later. So no spoiler, but we do, if you watch the entire season and then rewatch episode four, you'll see some characters and you're like, hmm, I think I know them. But we see this unrest in the Decapolis. Um, it's interesting in, in episode two, Jesus sends them east to Nave. Nave? Um, and east is the Decapolis, but Nave isn't one of the 10 cities. So I don't, I kind of tried to delve into Nave to see if it was an ancient city. It's a, it's a modern city in Israel, but it's down south. So I don't know what city he's referring to. Um, I didn't do that much research, I guess. But I thought that was interesting that they went to the Decapolis. Um, but that's not actually, Jesus sends them east. So he sends them east. They find themselves in the Decapolis. So the Decapolis was this region. The name hints at the fact that it was 10 cities, essentially. And it was kind of this intersection based on where it was, east of the Sea of Galilee and a little north um, and a little south that it was this this intersection of there were Jews living there, but it was also highly heavily Hellenized and Romanized. And so you had Hellenist culture, you had Roman culture, you had Jews living there, but you also had Aramaeans, um, Arameans and Nabataeans. So Arameans, that might sound familiar because we have the famous, um, my father was a wandering Aramean, referring to Abraham. Um, so it's a Semitic culture. And the Nabataeans are also a Semitic culture. The Nabataeans are famous for the city of Petra, the lost city of Petra, which was never really lost, but that's what people call it. And that's going to be south down um, south. Um, and in in now it's present day Jordan. And uh, Herod's mother was actually a Nabataean. And so you have kind of these Semitic cultures heavily influenced by the Roman and Hellenized um, cultures. And so that's where the Decapolis was. Um, so just a note there, you know, if, if you've watched the rest of the season, you see in this opening hints that that the message wasn't always well received. And I think that's a good reminder to us that Jesus's message is not always going to be well received, even when accompanied by miracles, because it's challenging, because it, it challenges our notion, our preconceived notions, it challenges our lives. The other thing I wanted to note about the opening was if you remember the bird scene where the guy is, um, you know, reading the entrails, which was a common practice in, you know, in, in Roman culture, in, um, in some, you know, Italian cultures, in some culture, you know, Greco cultures to read the entrails. And so we have this scene. And when I saw the scene, I couldn't remember where Peter and Judas were sent. I hadn't written that down. And I was like, wow, just 
the tiny glimpse of the surroundings that we see in that scene, I said, that's Caesarea Philippi. So I was very pleased when I went back to season two and found out that's exactly where they were sent. They were sent to the city of Caesarea Philippi, which is a um, a city heavily influenced. It's a pagan city. It's heavily influenced by um, worship of, for example, the god Pan with the dancing goats. I'm actually going to be talking about it in Letters to Home, the St. Paul Center podcast that I'm on um, every Thursday. I'm going to be talking about it on Thursday. But Caesarea Philippi, they did such a good job showing what Caesarea Philippi looked like, even though you barely saw it. If you go to Caesarea Philippi today, like they could have filmed it at Caesarea Philippi. I was so impressed. I could tell simply by the background behind the guy reading the entrails and behind Peter and Judas, I knew it was Caesarea Philippi. So kudos to them for that. And I really hope this is setting up for something in the future because we know that they're all going to go back to Caesarea Philippi and something's going to happen to Peter. So if you read Matthew 16, I really hope the reason Peter went to Caesarea Philippi, somehow they're going to set that up, but we'll see. Okay. So after the opening, we have kind of the opening. um, Once we have the credits, we have the opening synagogue scene. And I thought this was just a really great teaching moment where they're setting up the Jewish law for those who might be watching this show with no concept of Jewish ritual washings and, and ritual cleanliness, they are not uh, beating us over the head with that idea of unclean, but they use different things in this episode to teach us a little bit about Jewish um, ritual cleanliness. And so he's reading, of course, in the Torah about what makes you unclean. And, and we hear kind of the discharge of blood would make someone or touching someone with a discharge of blood would make them unclean, which is, of course, setting up um, for later in this episode when we meet Veronica. The mikvah, which would be the Jewish um, ritual cleansing, which is a, a, a bath of, of, of moving water where you go to be cleansed when you come into contact with ritual impurity. The mikvah is going to play a big role in the rest of the season. And so I liked how they, they, they do this repeatedly in The Chosen where they teach you just in case you don't know the story. For example, remember last season when they told the story of David and the showbread and eating the bread of the temple that he wasn't technically allowed to eat. They tell that story before the episode because it's going to play a role in later in the episode. And so if you don't know the story, the play, the part it's going to play later in the episode won't make sense. And so I think they do a very good job bringing us along if you aren't um, scripturally fluent in some of these nuances of Jewish law or the Jewish history. They do a good job kind of bringing us along. And that's what they do here with the um, the rabbi reading from the Torah. There's this comedic exchange then between Zeb and, you know, all the apostles are there with Zeb. And Zeb, you know, wonders why James and John are being so good. And, of course, it's kind of comedic relief. We expect Zeb, you know, Zeb's like, what's wrong with you? You're being too good, right? You're, you're obeying. You're being quiet. Um, oh, I just dropped my notes. Hold on. <laughs> that was dramatic. Um, and so we have Zeb, of course, this comedic relief with Zeb, but I think it's also an important reminder to us that following Jesus, listening to Jesus is not just about the miracles, that these men hopefully are changing. These men are becoming virtuous. And so while they are going to be, they're going to still mess up and they're still going to be you know, learning and growing, we should see some growth in them. And 
I don't know if that's why, you know, there was this comedic exchange with Seb, but that's, I, I really appreciated that, that maybe they're maturing and becoming a little more virtuous. Um, there's a little bit more comedic relief when there's a um, interruption outside and the rabbi gets distracted and he says, where was I? Oh, ritual cleansing. Um, it's a little humorous throwaway. Of course, you're at ritual cleansing. You've been reading and on and on and on and on and on about ritual cleansing. But I just wanted to drop like these are the little humor throwaway lines that I think that's what The Chosen does best when it comes to comedy. I think when they over comedic, like when they try too hard, I, I think it falls short. But I appreciate when there's these little throwaway lines that maybe you might even miss. But if you sit, it's funny, right? So where was I? Oh, ritual cleansing. I I appreciate those little tiny, I think they, they do that comedy the best. We have this storyline of the cistern throughout this episode. And I'd be interested in the chat for those of you watching live on YouTube to see what you think about the cistern storyline. Try not to give spoilers away if you can, but um, I know the first time I watched this episode, I was like, where is this going? Why are we talking about this? Um, and we saw the beginning of the cistern storyline earlier, right? When um, we saw it briefly with, um, why can't I think, Quintus, right? So Quintus, we see it briefly with Quintus when they find out there's something wrong with the cistern. Um, and so, but once again, it's one of these storylines that really sets the background for a lot of future storylines. And so this season seems very heavy with some of these adjacent stories. And we've talked about this earlier. I get tired of the adjacent stories when they don't have a payoff. I want the payoff to be big enough to make it worth my time. And I was first worried that the cistern what's the payoff going to be? And is it going to be big enough to pay off, um, to pay off into something? But we see later in this episode and in the coming episodes, it actually kind of connects a lot of people that wouldn't have been connected. And I think that's, it, it plays an important role in that it does, it doesn't just set up future storylines, but it connects people. Christy says, my concern with the sister storyline is is this a thing that would have happened? And I agree. I think there's a few things in this episode and in the coming episodes where I have pause about whether they are realistic and historically accurate. And some of it is I just don't know. I don't, I mean, they would have a cistern and it would break. Uh, it does, it does, I don't know. Would Rome be in charge of fixing it? I mean, I still struggle with Rome, the Rome heavy Roman presence in Capernaum. Um, and some of this is I'm not a Roman historian. I'm not an Israel, you know, a Jewish historian. So I have the same question from Christy. Um, you know, would would this all have happened? Would Quintus have helped? Was that Rome's authority? So I agree. Um, but we have this Eastern storyline, and like I said, like I said, it connects a lot of people. So one of the things coming out of the sister and storyline is we learn something about Yusuf, right? Yusuf goes, because Yusuf, Rabbi Yusuf, we know that he's, um, you know, that we know that he's sympathetic to Jesus. He goes to Jairus, who is quickly becoming um, sympathetic to Jesus. And so he goes to Jairus to talk about the cistern. So here we have the cistern bringing together, once again, Yusuf and Jairus. 
Um, and Jairus is coming to a knowledge of Jesus through studying the Torah and the prophecies. So I think this, this I think this conversation is done really well. It shows why some Jews would have not recognized Jesus because Jairus says something like, you know, are some people too close to it that you're not seeing it, but Jairus is removed. And so he's able to, um, you know, he's able to now study the prophecies. So that's what he's doing. He's studying the Torah. He's studying the prophecies and he's seeing this Jesus is up to something, right? So I think that's a really powerful conversation. I also think the conversation between them is important to show that Jairus is really sticking his neck out as a synagogue official when he asks Jesus to cure his daughter. Now that's a spoiler, but if you've read scripture, you know who Jairus is. That's not a spoiler. That Jairus is going to ask Jesus to cure his daughter. And he's really sticking his neck out because he, we see that, you know, they, they use the word complicit in their conversation. We see that Jesus is a controversial figure for, for the establishment. And Jairus as a synagogue official, you know, is reluctant to come out on the side of Jesus. But his daughter's need is going to overpower that. Christy says, did we ever establish Rabbi Yusuf's last name? I am now convinced of who he is. And um, it was because of the conversation. So I'm quick, I've more and more, as he became more and more sympathetic to Jesus, someone said this, uh, Christy, I think it was you last season, had a suspicion about who Rabbi Yosef was. So um, his name, of course, is spelled, um, it's either Y-U-S-E-F, I think it's Y-U-S-S-I-F, but that's Hebrew, we would say, Joseph. And if you remember, the cistern storyline allowed us a little information into Rabbi Yusuf. He comes to Jairus for paper, for parchment, because he's going to write to his connections in Jerusalem. He's well-connected in Jerusalem. His family's well-connected. There's a stone quarry. He seems to be a man, maybe, of means in Jerusalem. I'm becoming more and more convinced that he's a certain wealthy Joseph that will come into play later in the Passion. So I think we're seeing Joseph um, of Arimathea. But that's just my thought. It was one of your thoughts. Some of you out there had a thought. I think, Christy, I think it was you last season. But I'm pretty convinced this is Joseph of Arimathea, who, um, of course, will use his connections and use his riches to bury our Lord. So we, we have this conversation. Jairus is going to, we know who Jairus is, right? If you've read the scriptures, we, we read in Mark five, the story of, of the healing of Jairus's daughter, but we have this introduction now to the storyline. Um, Neely, his 12 year old daughter fa falls ill again, related to the broken cistern. I think the way this episode ends, we're all surprised in the next episode that she's alive. Um, I certainly thought at the end of this episode that she um, has passed away by the way the episode ended. But we are introduced to his family. We are introduced to um, rather to his daughter's sickness. We have another character that's introduced to us through the cistern. Um, the broken cistern sets up a friendship between Eden and Veronica. So we have this woman, we learn pretty quickly that she is the woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Again, if we read Mark 5, we know Jairus' daughter's about to be healed. We can suspect that we're about to, to meet a woman 
who has been bleeding for the same amount of time that Jairus's daughter has been alive. That's the beauty of, of Mark 5. This woman has been suffering for 12 years and Jairus's daughter's 12 years old. So Veronica meets Eden and um, one really poignant kind of throwaway line is uh, Veronica says, you know, I'm not going to be good company. And I loved Eden's observation that most people don't know that about themselves. And um, that made me kind of chuckle that that most people don't have the self-knowledge that they're not good company. Um, and Veronica actually, so we, we see this friendship develop in some ways between Veronica and Eden. We realize that we have several conversations and scenes throughout this episode to show how would this woman have been ostracized? Um, what and and this happens a lot in the chosen, where they want to really set up these characters to show that these miracles are deeply impactful, and so they they sometimes create these back storylines. For example, like Peter and Peter's debt to the Romans. You know, they spent some time on this storyline, which can put people off from the very beginning, season one. I'm like, what is happening with Peter and the Romans? This didn't happen. Why are we doing this? But it's to pay off, right? In, see, in episode four, we realized that the miracle of the fish was much more, even more meaningful than we might have thought. And um, I think the same sort of thing's happening here with the woman in the hemorrhage, being so removed from Jewish ritual purity laws, being so removed from the uh, culture at the time, we need to delve a little into this woman and we need these scenes that show what would this bleeding have meant? It's really this little homily, right? So most of us, when we go and we hear a homily on Mark 5, we might have a priest explain this to us. That, And I actually, I have a, a Bible study called Encountering Christ. And I talk about this in the, the Bible study, Encountering Christ. I talk about this, this, this figure of this woman. And so her encounter with Christ is not simply just, she spent a lot of money on doctors and she's been bleeding and that's annoying and that's painful, but that her bleeding, her hemorrhaging would have made her ritually impure and would have ostracized her, right? So we, for example, in this in this episode, they say that she isn't married, right? We don't know that about the woman with the hemorrhage in real life, but they say she's not married. They say like her family's disowned her. So we don't really know that about the woman in the hemorrhage, but they're kind of building this so that when she is cured, we have a better appreciation of what Christ has done for her. Um, and so I think this is very classic for the chosen to build up these stories, to really bring home what Christ was doing, that he was doing more than just healing them physically, but that he was, um, allowing them to now go back to worship at the temple. She could go back to the synagogue. She could go to the temple in Jerusalem. She would not, you know, people wouldn't recoil from her. I think her relationship with Eden is really beautiful to show that maybe women would have had a sympathy for each other. Whereas, you know, men, and I don't, I don't want to get too graphic here, but, you know, men would have become ritually impure from contact with their wives when they were unclean, but women would have had to deal more with the, I'm unclean now, and, and to deal with that. Um, and so Eden would know what it was like to be unclean, to have her husband not be able to touch her when she was unclean. And then now she meets a woman who's been unclean for 12 years and she can, she can, um, sympathize with that. So I think that's a really beautiful encounter. And of course, we'll see more of Veronica in the next episode. Veronica is actually not a name at that time. And so if you have a guess of who Veronica is, I think you're right. <laughs> um, for us Catholics, 
we call the woman who wipes Jesus's face with her veil, Veronica. Now, so I think this woman will make a reappearance. I don't think there's, there's no doubt in my mind that this woman will make a reappearance on the way of the cross. Veronica was not a name at the time. Um, It actually means true picture, true icon. And that name was actually given to the cloth that she wiped Jesus's um, face with, a cloth that we still have. You can go visit it in Montepello, Italy. Um, The Veronica, the true icon where Jesus, um, she, the tradition, one of the traditions is that she wipes his face with it and he leaves her, his imprint on it. Another tradition is that it was the face cloth that would have been laid over Jesus's face when he was buried in the tomb, but that there's this cloth with Jesus's face on it. It would be called throughout the early church. It was called the Veronica. And over the years, that tradition morphed into the idea about there is a woman named Veronica. So, um, so that's a whole nother show. That's a whole nother podcast. You can go down that rabbit hole. I highly recommend it because it's fascinating. But when we hear the name Veronica, I think we have to assume it's the woman at the way of the cross. Now, I think some of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters would not immediately think about this because they don't have the tradition of the stations of the cross. They don't have the tradition of Veronica wiping the face of Jesus. Um, But I have to say, Dallas and the writers used the Samaritan woman's name, Fotina. If you remember in the first season and in the beginning of the second season, Fotina is the name of the Samaritan woman at the well. That is found in tradition. That is how the um, Orthodox Church, the Eastern Catholic Church, refers to the Samaritan woman, who they believe is a canonized saint, who we believe is a canonized saint, Saint Fotina. So it's not the first time that they would be looking outside of scripture to either Greek or Roman traditions about who somebody might be. So I'm just throwing that out there. Another storyline that comes out, there's obviously a lot to say about this storyline. We're going to stick to just talking about this episode. Um, And that is of Simon and Eden. Again, there's a lot to say about that, but I'm going to stick to episode four. Again, this is one of those scenes. This is one of those threads that you're like, where is this going? Is this going to have a payoff? So Simon returns home. And all I can say about this scene is a husband and wife wrote it. I think I think somehow a wife wrote it as well. It's classic husband and wife. He doesn't notice anything different about the house. He doesn't really care about anything. She's so happy that the house is like redecorated and she's rearranged and he could really care less. Um, there was this great moment where she suggests that he take a nap. And then she gets mad when he goes to take that nap. Um, I mean, this is classic miscommunication of husband and wife, lack of communication. I mean, tomorrow, ladies, if you've told your husband you don't want anything for Valentine's Day, you can't get mad at him if he doesn't get you anything for Valentine's Day. I'm here to tell you that, right? So it's this classic like, well, you didn't read my mind, right? I didn't really want you to take a nap. I suggested you take a nap, but now I'm going to be mad at you for taking a nap because I think you should have known you shouldn't take a nap. And he could be like, but you told me to take a nap. so this scene is is really frustrating, but I think when we see it, we can most of us can see ourselves in it, right? Um, what do you want for Christmas? Nothing. Well, guess what? Your husband's going to take you seriously, so don't say that. Don't say you don't want anything. Um, so Eden and Peter, it's it's heartbreaking. 
she says the classic female line, it's fine. When men, whenever a woman says that, it's fine. It's not fine. Again, I'm saying this as a woman. That's frustrating. Women, you need to communicate your needs. This is just classic. There's no communication of needs. They're both at fault in this. So I think every wife watches this and points fingers at Peter. Every husband watches this and points um, fingers at, at, at Eden. Um, you know, when the apostles are hanging out, Eden tells Peter, I don't need help. Everything's okay. So Peter's the oblivious husband. You know, he knows something's wrong, but what, what can he do, right? So um, I find these, these scenes frustrating, but highly, highly realistic. And that's all I'm going to say about them, because that's all really this episode covers, is there's trouble at home. Um, Peter is having problems, right? I mean, he even snaps at Jesus. He doesn't know how to reconcile this new life with his home life. And he's struggling because he has an angry wife and nobody wants an angry wife. Um my mom says women are empathetic naturally. And that's very true, right? That's, that's classic. Women are empathetic. They're, they're more sensitive. Men aren't. That's true. Um, which is why I think we can say like Peter is oblivious, but at the same time, Eden's not helping things by not communicating. So, um, I find them both at fault in this scene. I, I don't think they're, um, they're, uh, <laughs> Dr. Ben Smith says, I told my boys, prepare for this. Amen. Yes. Um, every marriage, every uh, um, marriage prep class should watch that scene and then like break it down and talk about who did what badly. That'd be fantastic. We also have the, um, again, this like ex, this like side storyline of Mary Magdalene and Tamar. I'm not crazy about Tamar. Um, I think there's their difficulties with with each other between the two women are very natural and realistic. I think um, women would have a hard time, like all of a sudden living together with another strange woman. They would, we'll, we'll see some of this in the coming episodes, but there'll be some jealousy and some, you know, um, you know, some because of self-doubt and wounds. We tend to take those wounds. We tend to take those those, you know, issues with ourselves, we take them out on others. And so I think it's realistic. I'm just not crazy about spending time on this storyline. There are certain things I think they could have done better in this storyline. I'm still not sure a Gentile would be living with a Jew. You know, um, Jesus obviously came for all. He came for the Gentiles. But it took a long time for the church to really sort that out. And I think they're glossing over I think they're they're glossing over how radical that would have been um, and how Jesus even introduces that to them quite slowly. You know, even in, in Peter's conversation with Gaius at the end of this episode, he's like, oh, Jesus is going to change the separation. He's going to change all that. And it's not, that seems odd from a man who would lead the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 and discuss how they were going to deal with Gentiles coming into the church. So I think it's a little too tidy how Jesus obviously interacted with Gentiles. He sought out the Gentiles. That's a huge theme in um, Mark, um, you know, Mark 7. Um, sorry, Mark. Yeah, Mark 7, which, again, we're going to talk about later because I think the way they deal with Mark 7, uh, I, I, I'm not 
I'm not 100% on board the way they deal with Mark 7 in episode 8. But, um, you know, I, I just, this relationship, I think, is too tidy for the time, for the historical accuracy. Um, Tamar's jewelry, you know, Mary wants her to sell it. She Mary uses the word animism, which I actually laughed out loud, and that I was super uncharitable of me. But um, that's not a term like that's like uh, I mean, Dr. Smith philosophically can correct me, but animism comes out in like the 18th century. That's that's a term that's coined maybe even in the 19th century. I think the whole thing could have been dealt with better and not been so shockingly anachronistic. I'm, I put the the mention of animism up there with that corn joke in the last season. I just think um, it wasn't like we could talk about the idea of animism without using this his shockingly historically in, anachronistic term. So I, I'm going to, you know, wait to kind of pass judgment on this, um, this relationship and this scene. Zeb's olive oil business. I'm not really sure. I, I trust it's going somewhere, right? I trust that this all has a purpose. This all is setting something up. Again, this season has a lot of storylines. I just hope the play, the payoffs of these storylines are worth it. You know, is Zeb's anointing oil going to be what's taken to the tomb on Easter Sunday? That would be great. You know, I mean, that would, would make sense, right? Because we have the, the mother of James and John going to anoint Jesus's body when they find the empty tomb. But I'm not entirely sure where this is going. Wendy says animism would be pagan. Yes. So that's the thing. Like there's so many other terms they could use. Um, it just, it was shocking to the ears to hear kind of such a modern term. I mean, she also said Andrew's flat. I don't know if anybody noticed that. Um, she said they're Andrew's flat. And I was like, what is this like Manhattan? Like what? And maybe they would have said that. Like I didn't do a deep dive. I, I trust their they're, you know, they've done their research. And I know obviously they're not speaking Hebrew, right? This isn't the passion of the Christ. We don't have them speaking ancient languages, but you know, sometimes there's this, this desire to make it modern and we're losing, I think some of the, um, I don't know. It's this, you know, it's almost, I'm afraid we're running into the whole, like, Hallmark channel where we have people in the 17th century eating spaghetti in Canada, right? Like I, I don't want to get there, even if some of the language has to be brought to the modern ear. So that's just some, some thought. Um, the apostles then are meeting at Peter's house. They're bickering. Um, I keep dropping my notes. They're bickering. I think this is very, a really good scene where, you know, big James is struggling with he said things he didn't comprehend. He says, I said things I don't comprehend or live by. I felt like a fraud. And there's this struggle, like I'm an earthen vessel and we're all earthen vessels, but they, they're having this struggle with being earthen vessels with saying, you know, I don't, I don't always live this way, but I'm preaching it. And they're struggling with not understanding. And I don't know whether it's just being a teacher of the faith that I really relate to the scene in that, Sometimes I teach things that I don't live by (laughs) and it's not that I don't want to live by them. It's that I'm human and I fall and I sin and I can be here and tell you to do X, Y, Z. I'm not always going to do X, Y, Z because I'm human. I'm an earthen vessel. And so these men are struggling with, you know, we're going out and preaching the gospel, 
but we're not always living that way. Or we don't always understand. We don't understand what we're saying. We don't understand what we're teaching. And, you know, I think this is once again, one of those scenes where they're pulling out of the gospel, something that we don't think about. You know, we see in the gospels that the the apostles don't understand a lot. Um, You know, was it today or tomorrow where they're going to say, you know, they're going to say, oh, we don't have any bread. We didn't bring any bread with us. Like Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the, of the Pharisees. I think that's tomorrow's first reading. If you, if you've noticed, so if you go to daily mass or you read the daily mass readings, we've been tracking with the chosen lately, which is kind of cool in Mark's gospel. Um, But in, I'm looking it up right now. So play the Jeopardy theme song. Um, I think it's tomorrow because I've been working on tomorrow's. Um, yeah, so tomorrow on, in the sixth Sunday or the sixth Tuesday of of ordinary time, we have the reading from the gospel of Mark 8, 14 to 21. And Jesus tells them, watch out against the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they concluded among themselves, it was because they had no bread. And he said, why do you conclude that it's because you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or comprehend? Are your hearts hardened? You know, so often in the gospels, we see the apostles not understanding and it's kind of a comedic storyline. Almost, It's almost like, oh my gosh, you guys, you don't understand. And we kind of laugh and we feel sorry for them. But we don't really think about what it would have felt like not to understand. And I like that Dallas is going deeper into this. How would that have affected them? Those darn apostles, they didn't get it. Well, what would that have felt like to repeatedly be stumped, you know, um, later they'll be talking about a parable and they'll be like, you know, a lot of people don't understand that parable. And somebody admits, I don't think I understand the parable. And so I think these are the, these are the parts of the chosen that I really think are gold. If you can sit with a scene like this and really enter into the characters of the apostles in this way, what would it have been like not to understand? We know from scripture that they didn't understand. We don't have this scene in scripture. But we know from scripture, they struggled with understanding. Okay, so let's think, what would that have felt like? What would it have been like to go out and preach and teach and struggle with maybe I'm not always faithful to the gospel? These are real life lessons that this is why I think, again, this is, I think, the gold of the chosen. And yes, I agree right now, Christy put in the um, in the chat that, like there's lots of storylines and we just want to see Jesus. And I agree with you. I, I do think the chosen refers more to the apostles than to Jesus, the title. And so I think it makes sense. We're seeing more of these apostle storylines. But I think the goal of the chosen is you should be watching these episodes and seeing yourself. You are struggling with something these people are struggling with. If you don't see yourself, you're fooling yourself. If you don't see yourself in some of these characters, you're not being honest. And so I think the goal of the chosen is to look at these characters and say, where am I? Who am I? And what is Jesus trying to do in my life right now? And so I really loved the scene and James's struggle because it's so real and it's not something we really think about because the apostles stay one dimensional to us so often. And I think the goal of the chosen is that they're making these people into examinations of conscience for us and fleshy, um, realistic human people who had struggles.
just to end kind of the last scene is Peter and Gaius. Again, we have the broken cistern to thank for this scene. How else would Peter and Gaius strike up a friendship? I don't know whether this is very realistic, right? As Christy mentioned earlier, like how many of these scenes would the broken cistern have happened? Like, would this have happened? I don't know whether it's very realistic, but I like it. And I think I like it because I like both these characters. You know, I know a lot of you have, have trouble with Peter. I've always kind of liked Peter. I really like Gaius. He's grown on me since the first season. And I, I think their conversation is shows us that like at the heart people are people and there's a lot that separate these men but there's a lot that unite them too and they're both struggling they're both struggling we'll find out later that Gaius is struggling with home issues um this is our first hint that Gaius has a wife so I don't recall that he actually mentions her but he gives Peter marriage advice and you seem to, you can tell by the advice he gives that he has a wife. So this is our first hint that Gaius has a family. We don't know that much about Gaius. And um, I just, I felt like this was a, a real, very realistic, um, while it might not have been realistic, it might not have happened between a Roman soldier and a fish, Jewish fisherman. I think it was a, a people moment where men are men, people are people at their heart we all have knots, right? So Peter's tying these knots and he's tying them literally, but he's also tying them figuratively, right? Peter is in knots. His life is in knots and he's going to have to start untying these knots and he can't do it alone. Jesus is going to have to untie these knots, but he's not quite sure he wants to even ask Jesus to untie these knots. And so Gaius is in knots. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He's struggling with Jesus. Um, we find out later he's struggling with stuff at home, Peter's in knots. And so these men are going to come together over their knots, you know, and, and the only person that can untie these knots is Christ. So is Jesus Christ. So um, I'm looking back. So that's all I have for this episode. I'm going to look back in the chat for your comments, because one thing I really love about these YouTube lives is that they are a dialogue. I like hearing what you all have to say, too. Um, and yes, Chrissy says, I tolerate Peter. It's the Eden Peter storyline. Yeah. Um, Dan, I agree. Like the guys offered him a drink from his flask. I don't, I don't know if any of that would have happened. And Chrissy says, guys have been so curious about Jesus. I could imagine he would have looked to initiate a conversation with one of the apostles eventually. And it seems like he tried to with Matthew, but Peter might be somebody that guys can relate to a little bit better than Matthew. He loves Matthew. You can tell he has a fond heart, you know, for Matthew, but, um, but it's, it's been really interesting to see, you know, Gaius struggle with who Jesus is. So that's all I have for, again, this was season three, episode four clean part one and we have a lot of storylines of course that are going to play out in the next episode if you read scripture you know where some of these storylines are going and so these really set up some of these cures that um dan i agree patience with peter and eden there is payoff um i agree and and i think when we look at this season the real question is is the payoff worth it and for some of them i think it is for other ones, I'm not so sure. And I think the other ones, we haven't seen the payoff yet. And so, um, you know, stay patient. We'll see. 
And like I told somebody this week, I, you know, I think the chosen isn't for everyone. And so if you're getting annoyed with it, then stop watching it. (laughs) And I think it's, um, if it's not helping your spiritual life or if it's not helping or it's not entertaining for Pete's sake, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it it isn't for everyone. And I'm not going to be a chosen apologist to say everybody has to watch the chosen. You know what everybody has to do is read the scriptures. (laughs) And if you choose between, you know, finding Jesus in the chosen and finding Jesus in the scriptures, I think there's a clear and um, honest, uh, honestly good choice between those two read the scriptures. So, okay. Well, thanks for your time. We are going to be looking at season three, episode five, the second part of this episode on February 15th at the same time, same channel. I hope to see you then. God bless.